The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. John Gibbons with us for our weekly environment spot. John, there used to be an old phrase years ago, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. But wow, they could do with a bit of rain in Spain at the moment, couldn't they? Uh, good evening, Matt. Yes, uh, we've, we've got some really unusual uh, climatic conditions across Europe. It's not just Spain, but it certainly is Spain. And the, the first impact that we're seeing in Spain is serious uh, impact on agricultural production. They have drought. Yes. It's April. We're not talking about at the end of a long, hot summer, but 60% of the country is already suffering from drought. Yeah. You remember uh, last summer, we talked about this a number of times uh, when we had the hottest uh, summer ever recorded in continental Europe. Now, people were hoping and assuming that we would have a recovery and a recharging of reservoirs and so on over the winter of 2022-2023. It simply hasn't happened. And to give you an example of, of some of, of the problems that are baking in here, for example, the, the Alps are considered to be the water tower of that part of Europe. And they provide, if you like, a store of a winter precipitation in the form of snow that's then released into spring. Now, the Alps are currently at half their level of snow, which means, of course, that even that water reservoir is simply not available. And this is manifesting itself, Matt, right across Europe. We've got major rivers like the Po that are running one to two metres below their level at this time of the year. Now, can I step back briefly for a bit of context on this? I think it's incredibly important. I was looking at the data for the 20th century for Europe. In the 20th century, there were three severe droughts in Europe, 1949, 1976 and 1990. So that's 100 years, three severe droughts in Europe. Now, since 2003, we've had droughts in 2003, 2010, 2013, 2015, 2018 and 2022. So that means we've had six severe droughts in 20 years. Now, if you As do, against three for the entire 100 years. Century. If you do the maths on that, we've had a tenfold increase in severe droughts in Europe, in the 21st century, in the first two decades of the 21st century, compared to the 20th century. Droughts used to be an extremely rare, literally once-in-a-generation anomaly. They're now coming, as I said, at the rate of 2015, 2018, 2022, and the likelihood, Matt, is we're going to have a seventh major European drought this year. So I'm not really sure how many more times we can say it, but things are changing really, really quickly. The implications of this as well, particularly in Spain at the moment, I think they're already anticipating wheat and barley crops failing entirely in four regions. That's correct. And we saw that, for example, last year across France, we had major reductions in wheat production. And that also occurred at the same time as there was interruptions to Ukrainian wheat production for different reasons. So what we see really is our, our integrated agricultural system, which has been fantastically efficient at, if you like, at certain areas doing certain things and specialising in them. Now, that's beginning, well, no, not beginning, that's already creaking heavily. And Europe, if you like, is, a, first of all, it's a major consumer and it's a major importer of food, Matt. That's an important thing to say. Europe draws in food from other parts of the world. We are in no way food self-sufficient. But of course, we're also a major producer of food. So the implications for Europe, and I should add as well, by the way, that European temperature increases over the last 30 years are running at twice the global average. So, for example, we're now heating in, in across continental Europe at the rate of 0.5 degrees centigrade per decade. So, since 1990, European temperatures have risen by 1.5 degrees centigrade. This is on the land surface of Europe. It's an incredible rate of change. There is simply no precedent for it. And as you say, 
It isn't just, by the way, about food production, however serious that is. For example, uh, it's also affecting hydroelectric power production and also we can expect to see nuclear power plants. Which is also very important to the running the air conditioners. Of course, of course. And of course, uh, it's the great uh, paradox, if you like, of, of heating that as areas heat up and, for example, I've, I've travelled to France regularly and what I now find, something that you never saw 10 years ago, is that now almost all hotels and accommodation in France now have air conditioning. 10 years ago, almost none of them had air conditioning. And I've spoken to proprietors about this in France and they said it's very simple. If we don't install air conditioning, people will not stay in our hotels. So that is a really tangible sense of how quickly things have changed because air conditioning, apart from the huge energy use, is also a massive capital outlay uh, for, especially for old buildings, old hotels and so on that are not set up for it. So they have had to spend that basically or else shut up shop. Talk to me about TikTok removing climate denier videos. Yeah, uh, TikTok have obviously been in the news for, for mostly for all the wrong reasons and it looks to me like here like they're trying to do a little bit of uh, PR on, the, on their reputation. So what they announced, Matt, this week is that ahead of Earth Day, which happens, by the way, this Saturday the 22nd, we might come back to that, uh, they've decided that they're going to uh, empower accurate climate discussions and reduce harmful misinformation. So the approach that they're taking basically is, of course, TikTok serves up billions of these very short, punchy videos and they have been catnip for deniers. You put up a a saucy meme with some misleading charts and it flies. It absolutely flies. So what they're basically doing now is is they they claim that any clip which contains misinformation about the climate crisis will be removed. Now, I'll have to ask my teenagers to monitor this. I'm afraid I'm not a TikTok user. I have no plans to be a TikTok user. I'm more more on, on Twitter. Twitter, unfortunately, has gone in exactly the opposite direction. In the last, I think, six months or so, it has basically gone from being a, a problematic but relatively well curated social media site to a an armpit. And what we've seen, for example, if you go into Twitter and you select the hashtag climate and you start typing it, it will autofill regularly to fill climate hoax. So they have tweaked the algorithms on Twitter to basically provide raw red meat, if you like, for climate deniers. So unfortunately, TikTok, and I think it's quite interesting, Matt, uh, that TikTok have taken this decision that even though it is profitable to feed denial, vaccine denial you spoke about a little while ago, it's the same type of people, uh, very energised conspiracy theorists for all kinds of reasons. And YouTube, for example, also, uh, they claim that they are make, they're, they're beginning to attach, for example, two climate videos of, of, of dubious provenance. They're beginning to attach, uh, you know, sources, for example, linking it to the UN. So I had a look at this earlier just to see how, how, how they're doing. So when I typed in climate change as a general search into YouTube using a browser that I haven't used before, so it's a clean search, uh, I got sources like The Economist, the National Geographic, uh, DW, the, the German uh, news website. But as soon as I scrolled a little bit further down, I came across a clip from, of course, Fox News titled, There Is No Climate Crisis. And what they call a form alarmist. Now, the interesting thing are the numbers here. That clip by somebody you've, I promise you, you've never heard of, has over a million views. Now, I then looked up uh, an eminent climatologist on the same website, on the same platform, uh, talking about the AMOC collapse. 10,000 views, Matt, on his clip in two years. So when you are feeding the trolls, there's something, I don't know whether, is it, a, is it a tick in human nature, but we are drawn into conspiracies, we're drawn into denial and 
I don't know why, but it is, I think, a really important step uh, taken by TikTok, however you feel about the platform, because remember, young people particularly are getting their version of news. They used to get it on the TV. They're now getting it on TikTok. And I, if I could just add a final point on that, Matt, I think what this is saying to me anyway is we need to get the teaching of social media literacy onto the school curriculums at primary school level and at secondary school level. Kids and young adults need to understand when they're being played by the social media companies. Okay, you were at a speech last night by an oceanographer, Professor Stefan Ramstorff. Now, why was this of interest to you? Yeah, it's very interesting, Matt. This was an EPA uh, lecture in the Mansion House last night. And basically, Stefan Ramsdorf is, uh, I suppose, he's he's an oceanographer who specialises in the AMOC, which I guess uh, we we generally know as, as the Gulf Stream. Now, essentially, this is a gigantic submarine uh, ocean current that starts life. Well, it's a it's a circulation. It's he described it as being rather like the world's um, central heating system. It flows from the Antarctic. It wraps around through the Caribbean and it passes up by Northwest Europe. We know it, of course, Matt, because the reason we have a relatively benign climate, despite all the complaining we do about it here in Europe, where we're at the same line of latitude as Newfoundland. Yet we're ice free year round because of the Gulf Stream. Now, the Gulf Stream transfers to northwestern Europe the equivalent of the energy produced by one million nuclear power plants. So it's what's called a petawatt. You can look it up. It's lots of zeros. Now, this is a vast energy subsidy. Of course, it's a double benefit because not only does it provide warmth to Western Europe, it also draws dangerous heat away from the tropics. Now, this we know for certain, and Professor Ramsdorf confirmed this last night, that the AMOC has already, the, un, the overturning current has slowed by about 15% since 1990. So this gigantic current is beginning to slow. Well, it, we, it's already slowing. The question is, what happens if it shuts down? Now, the good news, for want of a better way of putting it, is this isn't going to happen like in the day after tomorrow where it shuts down in a few weeks and the northern hemisphere turns into an ice block. That, that's not going to happen. But a shutdown of the AMOC would cause uh, climate chaos right across the northern hemisphere. And another eminent scientist, Professor James Hansen, uh, he's done work on this. He's the former director of NASA. And his projections is that the temperature gradient between the, the tropics and the middle latitudes would become so severe, in other words, the heat difference between them, that it would fuel superstorms. These are storms, he said, capable of flattening cities. Storms like humans have never experienced. But we know that these have, these have occurred in the geological past. And it, it has happened previously when the AMOC shut down. So he, he put it very simply. What we need to do, like right now, is we need to cut emissions of all forms of fossil fuels by 50% by 2030, he said. We've got seven years. No, that doesn't mean, by the way, that we start in six and a half. We've seven years starting now to globally cut our emissions by 50%. And he said, essentially, if yet again we fail to do this, basically, we're inviting what he called cascading climatic tipping points. So to give you another example related to this, the West Antarctic ice sheet contains three metres of global sea level and it's hanging on by its proverbial fingernails. And that, apparently, somewhere at 1.5 degrees, Matt, that is going to basically begin to dump itself into the South, into the South Atlantic Ocean. And that means, essentially, the map of the world, including the map of Ireland, will be redrawn and we're going to end up losing much of our coastal settlement. So this is the kind of stuff, that's what gets me out in the evenings into these conferences. OK. Very briefly... 
It's Earth Day on Saturday, just like it's Record Store Day. <laughs> and it's Earth Overshoot Day as well. Yeah, Overshoot Day actually occurs uh, tomorrow. Now, this, by the way, is specifically for Ireland. The, the Global Earth Overshoot Day is expected to happen this year around about July the 28th. Now, to explain briefly what Earth Overshoot very Day... Very briefly. Very briefly. Basically, this is the day of the year at which we've, we've used the entire biocapacity of the Earth. Beyond that, we're essentially in ecological hock, if I can put it that way. Ireland, on the other hand, we achieve this by April the 21st this year. And that means essentially that for, for the world to live the way Irish people live and to use the resources of the average Irish person, we need 2.5 planet Earths. Now, unfortunately, Matt, as you may have noticed, we've only got the one. Thank you very much, John Gibbons. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, FM.